Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where each episode features insightful guests and important topics, all in the name of growth, growth for you, and growth, of course, for your team and your business. In today's episode, we're going to explore diversity, equality, inclusion, and how that impacts your business, your life, and society as a whole. And a special shout out to our friends at Goodwill. I know Dale and his team are, are tuning in today and they're up for a very special award to the Alberta Chamber of Commerce. It's uh, very relevant to today's topic. It's an award of distinction in the category of inclusion and diversity. And they, uh, they certainly walk the talk when it comes to inclusion and diversity. What a wonderful organization. So uh, good luck. The winners are announced in October. We'll be pulling for you. I am of course your host, Jeff Tetz, the CEO of Results where we believe if you can't execute, you're at risk of falling behind the competition. And we have a proven framework that's helped thousands of leaders grow their businesses faster over the last 20 years. And if you enjoy the show, uh, the biggest way to help grow the audience is word of mouth. Uh, anything you take away from today's episode, if you can mention it on Twitter and LinkedIn and get your friends and colleagues to sign up for future episodes, even watch the rebroadcasts on YouTube, we'd sure appreciate that. And now on with today's show. So we are very, very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Tina Opie. She's an award-winning researcher, consultant, and associate professor of management at Babson College in Boston. Dr. Opie advises small and large firms and individuals in the financial services, entertainment, media, beauty, educational, and healthcare industries, among others. As a consultant, Dr. Tina Opie provides organizations with strategic direction on how to create more diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplaces. Her consulting work has helped organizations such as American Express, Hulu, and the NFL. Dr. Opie's work has appeared in such outlets as O Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and Harvard Business Review. Uh, Dr. Opie, uh, welcome to the show. I, I, I can't see you yet, but I am hoping that, uh, that you can hear us here. There we are. Hi, hi Tina. Just click your uh, just click your mute button. There we go. There we go. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. This is great. No, uh, we're uh, we're uh, we're thrilled and delighted to have you. And and I know that there is uh, there's a lot uh, going on in the world right now, um, and and a lot of very heavy emotional uh, uh, things that are happening. And and uh, and so in light of all of that, we're even more appreciative that you would find time for us today. Of course, uh, it's really an honor to be here. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot that I want to explore with you today. And, and I know that there's going to be a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity uh, about, um, about the topics that we're going to explore. And I thought maybe where we would, where we would start, Tina, is that you help organizations fundamentally uncover barriers to meaningful engagement. Why should, as business leaders, why should we care about that? That's a very good question, Jeff. And, and what I'll start off saying is, is why do businesses exist to begin with, they exist so that we can engage, hopefully, with the marketplace, with employees as we create our products and services. And so when you have a workforce that's characterized by disengagement, that has negative implications for both individuals, but also for that organization's ability to serve its employees as well as consumers or customers. Yeah. Now, I would imagine that there are uh, there's some common barriers that you run into uh, that get in the way significantly interfering with engagement levels. What would some of those common barriers be if there are some, Tina? Right. So in terms of engagement with coworkers or with people, 
things like inauthenticity. So I, I use the, I define the term authenticity as when your internal experience is aligned with your external expression. So you're not feeling the need to fake the funk, as we say here, you are able to express what you're actually experiencing. And I, we can get into more details about that. Yeah. Well, let me say this now, Jeff. Being authentic does not mean cursing somebody out when they cut you off in traffic, for example, because authenticity is very much about being your best self. And I think many of us, if we could pause and take a deep breath, we wouldn't do that. That's not the kind of people or those aren't the values that we reflect. Rather, authenticity is a thinking about when you are at your best, what are the things that you experience inside and how could you express them? So inauthenticity is one of them. A second is fear and distrust. So you may be afraid that someone is going to hold something over your head. You might not trust that person, that that person has your best interest at heart. So you might not want to engage with them. Another is impression management. So just the concern that if you engage with someone or you discuss something that might be a little controversial, that this you might not seem as professional or polished as you want to present. And then in terms of engaging with the work, boredom can be one. So you might not want to engage with a task that you just think is ridiculous. And, and you know, we'll never be bored listening to you, Jeff. But there might be some people working at organizations where they literally hate the day in and day out grind. And there are many others, but those are the ones that are most salient for me right now. Yeah. And there's actually, you mentioned more than I think I would have guessed. And so the first, <laughs> the first thing I start to think about, Tina, is that could seem awfully confusing if, if there was a customized approach to dealing with all of it. And so I know that oftentimes there are not a, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to solving all the issues that, that, that kind of rise up and cause barriers to engagement between right. relationships. But you've got a really interesting framework, and I want that's probably a good lead in your, your, your methodology. You refer to it as shared sisterhood. And yeah. uh, as soon as I saw that, you know, when we first started talking months ago, I thought, okay, well, this is only for women. And uh, when the title of the episode came out, there I had certain male uh, colleagues and friends had reached out to me and said, Is that a female targeted episode? And I said, You know, heck no, this is for everybody, and uh, we need it, we need people to understand what this means. So I'd like for you to maybe walk through what shared sisterhood, what, what does it mean, Tina? And then what is the methodology itself? Okay, sure, Jeff, thank you for that. So shared sisterhood is a term that comes from about 15 years ago. There was a conference that I went to and we were literally, it was just a term that was being bandied about. There was not sort of a theoretical or academic underpinning. And then what I did was I began to write up what that means. And so shared sisterhood, the way that I define it, and my, one of my co-authors, Beth Livingston, is a process that we can use to build authentic relationships. So remember the definition of authenticity that I just gave. So this is an interpersonal idea where I am able to connect with you in an authentic way by focusing on four things. And those things are vulnerability, empathy, trust, and risk-taking. So what we hypothesized and what we actually have found in some empirical research as well as some anecdotal research, and I can talk to you more about the shared sisterhood community that we have created online, which is roughly 5,000 strong. So that is the process that we use. Now, now to get, look at the shared sisterhood process, 
I call it, I divide it into two processes, dig and bridge. So this initial work, the idea for Shared Sisterhood came about because I looked at the world and I said, in particular, I was focusing on workplace dynamics because I'm an organizational behaviorist. So that is the context that I study. And I wondered why haven't black women and white women, and I know that racial labels are different in Canada, in the United States, in the workplace, black women and white women have been the largest demographic of working professional women. And many of them identify as feminist or womanist. And yet that category, that label doesn't seem to be strong enough to cause those demographics, those two groups to come together and focus on things that affect both of them like gender inequity or pay inequity. And so Shared Sisterhood was an opportunity to look at that. And the dig process came about because what I found is when I tried to enter into conversations with white women in particular, we weren't entering the conversation at the same point. So we would have debates about definitions. So what is race? Is race real? What is racism? Can black people be racist? What is sexism? Can women be sexist? Et cetera, et cetera. So we, the dig process is very much about helping people surface their racial identities, their gender identities, understanding assumptions that they may have about themselves and other people, interrogating where those assumptions come from. And we argue that it's only until people have done what we call dig yeah. that we can then effectively bridge. I think many organizations try to jump right into connecting mm -hmm. without doing that dig work. Mm -hmm. So that is, so, and bridging is about connecting with people across difference, being able to have, again, vulnerable conversations, transparent, trusting conversations, take risks on behalf of each other and also express empathy. So that's the general framework. And I wanna also say, anybody can be a sister regardless of gender. Yes. So, I intentionally use the term sisterhood because it sort of throws people off of their equilibrium. They don't quite know. And guess what? I'm trying to make you vulnerable. Yeah. Really, the term itself is designed to make people sort of take a step back and ponder what this is all about. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I find that most of my vulnerable, my most vulnerable conversations are with women. So I'm just hoping that uh, that that circle of women I'm involved with will accept me as a sister. And I'm hoping to bring a few, maybe a few, uh, a few males along with me at least too. You know, I'm, this, this dig piece, I, I really would like to dig into that literally, because I just don't think there's near enough of that. And I, but I'd like to better understand the definition of that. So you, you mentioned the, there's that there's the four pieces. Uh, there's the vulnerability, the empathy, the trust, and the risk taking. Mm -hmm. So I, I was, would it, could you maybe share an example of what that has actually looked like? Like an actual conversation, there was a clear misunderstanding on definition, or there was a different starting point that you referenced already. Mm -hmm. What is a con, what does that conversation look like? How long does it take to to, to to properly dig before you've earned the right? How do you know you've earned the right to bridge? Like I'm just so fast. Wow. And for an example of that, Tina? That's a, that's a great question. And, and here's a common example. So I mentioned we have a shared sisterhood Facebook group. And right now I will say we focus primarily on people who identify as women. And so we haven't let people who identify as men 
come into the group yet. However, one of the common themes that we've seen is there can often be a misunderstanding about whether or not someone has engaged intentionally or unintentionally in something that's discriminatory or, or racist. And so they'll say, well, no, you know, systemic racism is not an issue. It's because that person, and I know this may sound crazy, but people actually believe this, and some of your, this might resonate with some of your listeners. If they're honest in the privacy of their own homes, they may think, well, it's not really an issue. It's more that that individual didn't engage in the necessary behavior. And so the dig process might look something like this, where when I interact with someone, first of all, I, on my side as a Black woman, have to sort of take a deep breath and not go on the defensive. That's yep. the first thing. Yep. The second thing is I do tend to ask questions. The dig process is very much introspective. So rather than me telling them something, I will say, okay, well, tell me more about that. Where did you come, where, where, where does that belief come from? So we engage in a conversation. They have to take the risk to share what they're actually thinking. They have to make themselves vulnerable. And they have to trust me that I'm not going to then take this information and hold it over their heads. And in turn, I have to empathize with them. This is not often something that I find white people engage in <laughs> at a deep level, and, and even men. I mean, Jeff, you, you put yourself out there, you, you threw your brothers out there with you. We, we, we are conditioned, I think, in many instances, not to do that kind of probing. And so the, the dig process might look like me saying, well, how do you define yourself in terms of racial terms? I've often been told by white individuals that they do not. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Do, do you identify as white? Not really. Well, what do you identify as? What, what is your culture? And then we may get into conversations about them being Italian or Irish or Swedish or German. Yeah. And then I'll say, okay, well, you know, in the United States, at least, you check white on the cat. When did you become white? So when did you stop being Irish in your mind? And when did you take on the label of white? That is the process that, that happens because we know white is a, is a social construct. I mean, race is a social construct. It's not biological. Mm -hmm. We can get into that if you'd like. Mm -hmm. But I'm really having them sometimes for the first time explore what those labels mean. And then the dig process continues by examining how their attitudes about race or racism or racial discrimination might be affected by their personal journey and their own racialized identities and attitudes. So I could talk forever on this conversation, but yeah. I hope that gives you some, some insight. Yeah, it does. And so the, like the phrase, tell me more about that. I think, I think that's a great phrase. I, I think anytime there's a, any kind of a, a feedback conversation taking place or a conversation of different perspectives, mm -hmm. but it, but it's relying on somebody being in the, on the high ground, Tina. Mm -hmm. And and there are so many emotionally charged, charged conversations right now and some very significant differences of opinion on, yeah. on, on uh, items such as race. When, when do you decide if you're willing to actually, what makes you decide if you're willing to take the high ground in those emotionally high-charged, high-stakes conversations to begin with? Okay, so Dolly Chuck, who is a, she's a professor at NYU Stern. She has a book called Being the Person You Mean to Be. And in there, she has, I can't remember if I share this with you, she has sort of a rubric. She calls it the 20-60-20 rule. And she may have gotten it from someone else, but I think she helped to popularize it. She divides the general population, so people who are engaging in these controversial discussions about race, 
into three segments or any po population. The top 20% are people who are your friends. Those are people who no matter what you, that's your mother, your father, your siblings who love you. They're in your corner. They, they generally agree with you. The bottom 20% are your foes. No matter what you say, they're not going to come around. <laughs> they're not trying to really understand. And so you might want to move on. It doesn't mean that you move on indefinitely, but it means that for right now, that might not be where you focus your attention. Instead, you shift your attention to the middle 60%. These are people who are interested in dialogue, not diatribes. They're not wanting to just tell you how you should think or what you should think. They're sincerely concerned and they're inquisitive about what you think. That is where I tend to focus my attention. I, so in terms of your, your to, to a second follow-up to your question is, how do you identify who you can talk to? It's people who are open to, to what if. And this is another question, you know, you talked about my question or my approach, tell me more about that. Another one that I have is what if it's true? So there are some times where people are vehemently confident. They're really confident that they're right. And then I present an alternative and they want to reject it. But if I can say to them, well, what if that is true? The thing that you strongly disagree with, what if it was true? Then what? If they're willing to engage in that kind of conversation, that is someone I want to continue with. And, and the third point would be that whenever I'm interacting with someone, I always ask myself, what is attractive to me about the opposing argument? And what am I uncomfortable about with my own argument? So what you're trying to do is open a space of common ground and, and by engaging in divergent opinion. So those are three quick tips or things that I would encourage people to keep in mind as they have these conversations. Yeah, that's, um, that's very specific, very helpful. The, the last piece of that, trying to ask yourself what is attractive about the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. I, I can already think of of a handful of conversations I've had in the last five days that if I would have, I would have stepped back and asked myself that very question, I think my demeanor and my attitude towards the conversation would have changed significantly. Right. And Jeff, I will say there's a caveat because there are yeah. some points, you know, I've been engaged in conversation with, with some people who think that because I am a black woman that I don't have a right to express, to basically be here. That's the boundary. I will not engage in a conversation with someone who questions my very humanity. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, that's important. I'm going, what I have, what I will do is I'll tag team. So Beth, Dr. Beth Livingston, she knows this. If there's someone who I'm interacting with who is harmful to me, yeah. but I think there could be a possibility of them opening, I will literally text her and say, okay, Beth, I need you to come on Facebook. I'll tag, I'm going to tag you and I need you to get involved in this conversation because I'm going to take a time out mm -hmm. because this person is questioning my, so it doesn't mean that the conversation has to end, yeah. but it means that I might not be the best person to deliver that message. Right. Is it possible to have these kinds of conversations on social media or, or do these have to be actual like deep conversations with people in person or in a platform like this where you've actually got time to, 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 to dig into the topic at hand? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I hope that it's possible to have it on social media because that is honestly the way that we've built the shared sisterhood community. It's been online. We're leaving one platform and going to Mighty Networks, which is a platform that's woman-led, woman-founded. So I'll be using that platform. But the idea is that we create a number of environments. So one of the blessings of the approach that I take at OP Consulting Group and with Shared Sisterhood is I'm a trained professor. So I'm trained in pedagogy in terms of how people learn, but I'm also a consultant. And so I can apply that. And so what that means is we'll have one platform, but we might, I've also created affinity groups for people to do the dig work. So I met, some people might find this odd, but I created affinity groups by self-identified racial ethnicity. So that means there's a group where a place where black women can go to do the dig work. There's a place where white women can go and do the dig work so that they, we can sort of hold each other accountable accountable and then come back to the larger group Mm -hmm. so what we're doing is creating intimate environments micro spaces sort of to do big work and then we do the bridge work you may have videos i have a curriculum that i'm developing so that people can work on -on one-on-one i encourage journaling so i guess the social media can work but there's you know tweeting back and forth to someone is probably not going to lead to the most uh, intimate environment, but there are ways to use social media to facilitate those conversations. Yeah, and the notion of an affinity group, uh, even if you're coming from opposing perspectives or different points of view, you're you're acknowledging that you want to learn and grow and you want to explore divergent thought and opinions. So I can see why that would be impactful. What, Tina, what about, so if you, if you recognize that you may have a relationship with someone and they are, you know, they're quote unquote, a good person, but they share very different views than you. And, and we all, I think we all have uh, people in our lives that, that we really like and admire their, their friends, their family. We have very different views. I think the tendency, at least for me, is to say their view of the world is wrong on certain subjects. Uh, how, how, how do we navigate that? Because if we all walk around thinking that somebody else's view is wrong, we're going to be closed-minded and, and immovable. But there are certain subjects right now, race being the number one, where there, there seems to be so much... Uh, so many conversations taking place where they seem wrong. <laughs> how do we bri- how do we bridge those topics when we think that the person is probably reasonable, but their views are wrong or appear well, wrong? Jeff, let's do this. Can you give me? And I'm putting you on the spot. Sorry. Yeah, please do. What are some of those conversations? So give me an example yeah. of a disagreement between two quote good people around race. Yeah, so I, I'll use, uh, there's a couple of examples I'd like to talk about today. And in the, I mean, the first one is the Wells Fargo CEO a few days ago really stepped in it when he said that there are not enough black people to recruit from uh, that, that would fit the talent requirement. And then he, as you let me know this morning, he then apologized for those comments. Now, when I saw those comments, there's a few things that happened for me. So uh, number one was I, I stepped back and tried to analyze the comments and say, geez, was that ever tone deaf? And then I stepped back and thought, okay, is, is he right at this very moment? Are there not enough people of color that are in the talent pool to recruit from? But then the third part of that was, what are the, what are the systemic causes that that might be the case? So I was trying to figure out if what he said is even true. And, and then if it is, what are the causes of it? But then what happens on social media 
there are some, there's just, a, there's a huge divide. There, there are the folks that condemn what he said immediately. And there, then there are people that are saying, look, this is actually the state of the world. So stop blaming it on systemic racism. It's not systemic racism. Uh, there's just for various reasons, people of color are not in the positions or haven't gone down the educational path to be qualified to take those jobs. And this is happening every minute of the day on social media. I don't know what to do about it sometimes, oftentimes. Well, so that's a great example. So I'm now going to reference, you all may have heard of Dr. Ibram Kendi's book on how to be an anti-racist. And I think it's important to set a context. So I think you raise a fair question. Some people, the pipeline argument has been used in every single field that I've worked in, studied, or considered. And the pipeline argument goes this way. There just aren't enough qualified people to be, to hire, to promote, to be C-suite executives. That, that's basically what CEO Scharf said, right, when in, in his comments. So that's a pipeline argument. I think that there are empirical results which disprove that, which show, for example, People will say, well, there's not a lot of black business professors. Well, where are you looking? Have you heard of the PhD project, which is the organization that wants uh, black, Latinx, or indigenous people in the United States are admitted into a doctoral program. They're then engrafted into this organization. So, but many people don't know about the PhD project. I went through the PhD project. So, so someone could rationally think there aren't any black professors, but that's, or Latinx or indigenous, but that's because they have not done the due diligence to find them. The other question is, is how are you defining qualified? So in job descriptions, it can seem objective. One example is whoever, in order to be promoted to full professor, you may have to have 30 years of experience in this particular field. Well, let's rewind to the 1950s. There were not a lot of women in the 1950s who had 30 years of experience. Why? So technically they didn't have that experience, but the job description was systemically, systematically excluding entire people groups. And does it mean, somebody may say, well, if you don't require 30 years of experience, you're gonna say 10, now you're lowering your quality standards. Are you really? Let's ask yourself, what are you trying to get at? What is a different, 30 years of experience, might that person actually be inculcated in a way of thinking that is now passe? Yeah. Don't you want innovation and creativity? So where is the balance that you can find between experience? And I'm not saying that people who've been in a position for a longer time are, or who are older are less innovative. But what I am saying is, there, and there's research to show this, the longer you do things in the same way, the, the more resistant you are to the change. So I don't know if that example helps you, Jeff, in terms yeah. of some specific examples of how one, we need to improve our networks, but also we need to look at the systems that we have in place. And, and what Kendi says is that if you say the pipeline is poor because of Black people, their individual behavior, but you fail to look at the systems in which they're operating, what you're saying is that there's something inherent in Black people. There's something biological about them that leads to this pipeline issue. And that, Jeff, and I'm going to pause, but that is racist. That is the definition of racist, where you think that there is something biologically different about me as a Black person that makes me less qualified or able 
to ascend. So it's either resting in the what black person or there, what, is there a system that's in place that values certain attributes that advances other people before black people? And the third thing is, is in order for that argument to be correct, CEO Sharp is implying that all of the white people who are in those positions, those executive positions, were the most qualified to be there. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I think we're seeing on the political scene that you can be in a really high and powerful role and not be qualified to be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, that, when you and I were uh, discussing that very topic a couple of weeks ago, that was a, that was a big paradigm shift for me was to analyze all of the, uh, all of the white people in positions. Like we, we, um, we, we talk about, you know, equal opportunities for employment and whatnot and affirmative action. And, and mm -hmm. the, ar the argument I always hear on affirmative action, as an, for example, is that, so, well, why would we want to promote somebody that's, that's not qualified? Um, right, just for the sake uh, yeah, of yeah. diversity, and yet we're surrounded by people that have been promoted into a level of incompetency every single day. It's a, it's a huge problem in in most organizations if they have more than fifty or sixty people. Yeah, and and I'll say so. Affirmative action, and I, you know, I'm U.S. centric, so forgive me. I know I've crossed the border. I'm sorry if I'm offending Canadians. In so, my, but a lot of my research is done in the United States. And in the United States, you know, I'm curious if your listeners want to chat and answer. I can't help it. I'm a professor. This is a pop quiz. In the United States, who are the large, who are the, what group benefits the most from affirmative action? I'm just curious and, and maybe others can sort of monitor that because I'm very curious to know what group benefits the most from the affirmative action in the United States. And, and maybe people are too afraid to say anything. But, you told me the answer, so I don't want to. I didn't want to. Exactly. I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet. And I think the answer surprised you, and it surprises most people. But that's because what we're doing is believing a narrative. Before, so, okay. Allison, yeah. Yeah, Allison guessed it. Yeah, another. Allison, she's, a, she's a fellow American professor, as you know. <laughs> yes, I know Allison, and she's right. It's white women, and some people may be saying what. If affirmative action applies to corporations, but in particular the federal government, and so in terms of federal contracts, white women have been the group throughout history that have benefited the most from affirmative action, and yet they are not the face of affirmative action. I am. Black people are the face of affirmative action, and I think questions like, well, why might that be? Might it be? And the second thing I'll say is. Jeff, I think you're correct. We promote people who aren't qualified and who are incompetent all the time. And this, is, this may also uh, upset people or be con a controversial comment to make. I want you to look around. First of all, there are not that many Black people who are in CEO positions or who are in the C-suite right now. We're better than we were 20, 30 years ago. But when you do see Black people, when you see a Ken Chenault, or an Ursula Burns, are they incompetent? Or are they in fact, perhaps, they've had to navigate a world, they've had to swim upstream like salmon. Is it possible that when people have to swim upstream and navigate a potentially hostile world, that they develop skills that people who don't have to navigate that do not develop? Yeah. So just, so it might those, those unique skills help them to become 
better CEOs than people who haven't developed themselves. So, so in my, and this is not about race. I'm not saying that black people are better. I'm saying that people who, women, if you look at a woman CEO who has had to do the work and also address the fact that there may be sexism, might she have some skills that her male counterparts have not had to develop? Yeah. And so in many instances of what I've seen when I'm in a, somebody might chat and be able to share empirical research, I find a lot of the women CEOs are outperforming the male CEOs. And I'm sorry, a lot of the black employees are outperforming their white employee counterparts if we look at their work objectively. So I just, and I know that that may, and that's because they have had to navigate a more hostile landscape and that can lead to skills like resilience that yeah. others might not have. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to remind people if they have questions for you, they can put them in the Q&A box and I'll, uh, I'll do my best to get to all of those, uh, all of those questions. I have a question already. So Ruth says, is like me bias an unconscious reason we perpetuate the pipeline argument? Absolutely. So homophily is a psychological term, which is sort of birds of a feather flock together. Yeah. And yes, so for, you know, I'm, I'm actually about to do some training with a law firm about this, about all the different kinds of biases that enter into the evaluation process, but they're also parallels to the hiring process. Yeah. You have confirmation bias. You may have homophily. You may have any no, you, identity bias where this person is like you. Yeah. Your identity. And so you think, of course they're qualified. They went to XYZ school just like I did. And I know we got rigorous training there. So just put, bring them on campus and interview them. Yeah. Yeah. How closely related is affinity bias to like me bias? When you say affinity, what do you mean? Affinity. So my understanding of affinity bias is, is we have a tendency to spend time with people that look like us, that act like us, that have similar interests than us. Uh, and, and even seeing it when uh, in attempts to put racially diverse groups together, even sometimes those racially diverse groups can be very similar in terms of their socioeconomic status, although they're diverse in color of their skin and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So I could be wrong, but when I hear you say like me or offend, so that is, it, it could be operating in two ways. I could just assume on the surface because I look and that person looks like me, I make assumptions about them and therefore I'm biased towards them. Or it could be that I've actually had interaction with someone that I like and yeah. therefore I'm biased towards them. So in either, they, they may be under a larger umbrella of homophily we're similar we in some way either in terms of values or in terms of identity yeah but they're, they're related to each other i think yeah. so tina i i want to make sure that when when this hour is over people feel more equipped to go and start having uncomfortable conversations with people and, and i and i think that we um, i think you've done a really good job articulating a lot of the dig uh, process and methodology I wonder if there's a bit more expansion on the bridge part. So how do you know when you've gotten to the point where you've earned the right to go to the bridge? And then, and how do we, so how do we transition to the bridge part? And then how do we know we've had a successful bridge bridging uh, outcome? And then how do you, I guess, maintain that bridge on a go forward basis and nurture what, what, what you've created now, this new relationship you've created? Thank you, Jeff. So, you know, I'm making a lot of comments that may make people uncomfortable. So, Good. <laughs> I hope. We, I hope we, we have to be uncomfortable in these topics. If we're not, we're probably not paying attention. So let's say that we're talking about 
people who identify as men, all people who identify as men, and or, or I should say this, people who have been in a power dynamic where because of their either presented gender or their identified gender, they have had some kind of benefit. And in, in the world, that is people who look like men, okay? They have potentially benefited from sort of systemic issues that may have prevented people who look like women from advancing. So in my opinion, men get to, they don't get to decide if they have done dig to a sufficient level. Someone who's from that marginalized group needs to stamp that card. Yeah. So in, in, in my shared sisterhood group, there are some, I'm just, I use race a lot, white women who want to say, well, I'm finished digging. I'm like, you don't get to say that. You need to have people who are not white telling you, you know what, I feel safe with you. I trust you. I will take a risk on your behalf. I still don't have to make myself vulnerable. If, you know, note to self, if you think that you, you're finished digging, but nobody who's from the marginalized community concurs with that, yeah. you need to go back to the room and dig some more. And you need to ask yourself, why do I think that I'm finished? What, so it's, it's literally this communal, interpersonal decision mm -hmm. to stamp that card. In terms of the bridge section, asking yourself what you want to give to the other person, as well as what you hope to gain. So, and those two important questions are important because sometimes I find people want to bridge with me, but it's not because they're trying to give me anything. They want to take, they want to learn from my education. They want to feel better about their situation. So they're taking and taking and taking. And I've had to tell some of my colleagues, listen, there's only one of me. And I've had thousands of people literally coming to me, asking me, can you give me a, a reading list? Can you, why are people, why, why are your people responding that way? Well, we're not a monolith, so we're not responding all the same way to begin with. And furthermore, I don't have, look at the news and, and, and interview people and talk to them or read the Black Lives Matter website, the resource list. You can learn a lot. So the other thing is, is understanding what people have to give to you. So in some instances, there's sort of a proselytizing or missionary approach to conversations where you think, I'm imparting wisdom to this underserved, marginalized person. Well, if you don't think that they can give you anything that you can benefit from that relationship, then again, you need to go back to the dig process because there's something in you that's causing you to marginalize or patronize this entire people group. Which is problematic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the biggest barriers to racial discussions and, and resolutions and progress, in my opinion, Tina, and I, I'm really curious about your perspective, is that the conversation is just not happening happening uh, to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think, as a a white male that checks, I think every privilege box that you <laughs> will find. Uh, it, it's a terrifying conversation to enter into and, and, and it almost, I almost feel, uh, well, not almost, I feel shameful to even say that because, uh, you know, my, my path to where I am today has been, uh, much easier than, than, than most. How, what, what is it that causes the fear of this conversation and what are some things that we can do to try to make this conversation safer to have? Mm 
-hmm. Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you for your courage in saying that because I think, you know, there are gonna be some of your friends who think you drunk the Kool-Aid. We had a, a leader from the free world in my country say that to someone who said something similar to what you had. So th there could be backlash that you confront, which is one of the first things that I think people fear. We don't discuss, well, I should say white people, people in positions of authority uh, who are from historically uh, advantaged groups are less likely to discuss that. I can tell you as a woman, we talk about sexism and feminism a lot. As a black person, we talk about racism a lot. So what we're talking about is that the people who are power beneficiaries are less likely to delve into these conversations. And I think concerns about backlash is critical. And, and again, I wanna remind the audience, we're gonna look at this at the individual level of analysis as well as the institutional level. So from an individual level of analysis, we wanna be liked. And you're going to ruffle feathers when you say what you just said. Why? Because it goes against the overarching narrative with things like meritocracy. Just work hard and you get ahead. Well, Jeff, you just said, my, I may, we all may be walking, but my path may be less difficult than somebody else who comes from a marginalized group. Mm -hmm. That means that you may have some unearned advantage, mm -hmm. which goes directly against meritocracy the Protestant work ethic, Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by the boots. It counters that. And then I think people say, well, now they're going to want to come get my earned stuff? Is, what, is, you know, what is happening? What could happen? Do I have to give something up? Does this mean that I have to sacrifice something to make things equal? What do you mean pay reparations? to what, what is that affirmative action? Hold on, no. There is a tremendous fear at the institutional level of changing the status quo. It can be an existential threat cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Some people don't like that book. I've, I mean, I've heard actually just one book reviewer who, who didn't like it, but this to me is one of the best books to really understand some of the ego threat that can happen at an individual level and some of the collective threat that happens at a larger level when we start to talk about equity and inclusion and just the mere mention of diversity and i can define that you know diversity is about numeric representation so how many you have in each category inclusion is about who is included in the decision making process and equity is about the ratio between inputs and outputs. So it should be that if I'm working eight hours and you're working eight hours and it's the same quality, roughly, I mean, you know, how do you determine that it's 100%, no. that we should be getting the same salary. But we know we don't have equity because we have gender inequity, racial inequity, and pay salary. Even when you control or adjust for things like time on the job, status of the of the education you went to, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're basically saying is a, a man and woman may be working at the same level, but the woman is paid much less. And yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, may her, her memory be a blessing, was one of the people in the United States who helped to address that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Tina. And I, I, I think up, up, if you would have asked me six months ago what... Um, what privilege meant, I would have told you it was a, uh, a white male born, born into a wealthy family. And so that's been a major uh, paradigm shift for me in this, in, uh, in this last handful of months, uh, for sure, since George Floyd uh, 
it's the George Floyd incident. Yeah. Uh, we, we just have a quick reference point here. Uh, the book that you mentioned earlier by the New York author, was it The Person You Mean by Dolly Chu? Yeah, Chuck. So I'm actually Chuck, sorry, going Chuck. to, sorry, can thanks. I take my answer? Yes. So it went, I shouldn't send it. It's from, did you see the answer? I actually put in the, I copied and posted the link. Yeah, we'll, and we can get that out on our social channels too. Yeah, we person have, you mean to be. So that's the link. Okay. No, that's that's good. I also think about the responsibility that 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 we have to uh, to do something to not just be you know kind mm -hmm. to people and this yeah. notion that uh, this notion that just you know being a kind person. Uh, you know, raising your family and and uh, and just being generous in your circles and and keeping your head down and your mouth shut. What's wrong with that as a good life? And and I think that's a challenging conversation. Yeah. And to going to the point where even I see a lot of people saying, if you're not part of the anti-racist movement, you are a racist. And I think that that's a very bold statement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have a hard time reconciling that one. What is your perspective on that? Well, I think that, again, Dr. Kendi and others have talked about this, where there's no race-neutral position. So, you know, I think part of the problem is, is we use the term good and kind because most people associate racism with the Klan, with the Ku Klux Klan or the Citizens Brigade, where they're going to come in with, with guns and they're going to kill somebody like me for trying to vote or for asking for just basic respect. So that's on a spectrum. So violence is, is one end of the spectrum. I think the way that you can reconcile this though is that there are things that you may have noticed that women experience that are different, that black people experience, Latinx people, immigrant people, LGBTQIA people, any number of people who are from historically marginalized people groups. You may know, have noticed that and decided, okay, that's not really my business, it's okay. In that way, you are complicit with the racist experience. It's sort of like if you see, if you go down the street and you see someone being beaten to death and you don't do anything, you just keep walking, you don't call the police, you don't take out your camera behind a corner because you're scared and film it so at least there'll be evidence. You don't do anything, you just keep walking. You're contributing. You're not actually engaging in the behavior but you're complicit because of that silence and that turning the other eye, you are actually helping that system to be perpetuated. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard for people to understand, but I will make myself vulnerable here and say, listen, I didn't grow up poor. And so my parents were well off and now my husband and I are, are, are well off. And or my parents were middle class and they provided for us so that my husband and our family could be even better off financially. So class issues, there may be a time where I'm not thinking about the fact, okay, we're, gonna, we're in the middle of a pandemic, I'm trying to educate my child. I can hire tutors for my children. Mm -hmm. Other people from other classes might not. Do I speak up on their behalf or not? So, so I put that out there to say, rather than people getting defensive and saying, I don't have any privileges, most of us have some kind of privilege. You know, I'm a black, educated, Christian woman living in the United States who's well off financially. I, there's some privilege embedded in that. Yeah. And do I take that and help other people who might not be 
as privileged as I am. That, that to me is a critical conversation mm-hmm. for us to all have as individuals. Yes. Do you have any suggestions or tips on how somebody can become more aware of their blind spots? Yeah, their biases? So I think it was the, is it PRRI or the Pew Charitable Trust or all of the above have done studies on friendship networks and our social networks. And white people in particular have some of the most racially, homo- racially homogenous social networks. And it's very difficult to understand your blind spots if you're around people who are blind like you are. And I'm not going to make generalizations because again, race is a social construct, but it's a social construct that has reality because we've attached reality to it. So I think exposing yourself to people who are different than you, reading about, you know, when was the last time that you read a novel that wasn't written by someone like you or watch, you know, I never watched the show Friends because I was so offended. I'm like, you guys can't, Aisha Curry, I think came on the end. I was like, y'all can't find any black people or Latinx people in New York? Come on, people. This was intentional to me. So are you, are you surrounding yourself with people who look like you or not? Are you only surrounding yourself with yes people or do you have people who will get into a divergent discussion with you and you can still be friends afterwards or you where both of you learn something so i think intentional and not tokenizing people so listen if you go up to a strange black a person you don't know who's black and say dr tina opie told me to say hello and introduce myself so you can help me get rid of my blind spots that is not what i said that won't work (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is not what I said. What I'm saying is do some introspection about how you can open your eyes and ears to different experiences. And if you can develop an authentic relationship, again, remembering that you have something to learn from that person and you have something potentially to share in part to that person, go for it. Walk across the room and introduce yourself. But please don't expect people to just educate you because that is work that you need to do mm-hmm. on your own. So I just said a whole bunch of things, but yeah. working on your social network and then also your own sort of education is critical. And there's lots of resources out there. Yeah, thank you for that, Tina. Lots of uh, lots of note taking from uh, from the attendees right now. I'm sure. I know that we're uh, we're you know 24 hours out from the uh, announcement of, of uh, the judgment on Breonna Taylor and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and how sad that was. You have said in our conversations leading up to today that you are an optimist and mm-hmm. you have hope for the future. And, and I thought that might be a good place for us to segue right now would be, what are the things that give you hope for the future despite all of the, the challenges and, and, and strife that we're surrounded by? Well, as I shared earlier, I'm a, a Christian woman, so Jesus. I mean, I will be honest, if I look at humanity, I don't know how optimistic I would be because we as a species seem to love to harm each other and to lie to ourselves and say, make it seem like, well, that harm, that hurt, that's good for them. I mean, you know, during the period of enslavement, enslavers believed that they were actually helping the people they were enslaved. Some of them did. And maybe that's post, you know, rationalization to enable them to continue doing the atrocious things that they did. But my faith definitely gives me hope. And also, you know, conversations like this, I I think it's a very unique inflection point in the history of the world where 
I mean, I've seen things that I did not expect. My husband and I were watching a protest and there were little white kids there and white mothers with strollers pushing their babies, raising their fists, saying Black Lives Matter. I haven't seen that happen before. I mean, or when I did, it was on tapes of the civil rights movement where you saw, I mean, as Jesse Jackson would say, this rainbow coalition of people and now it feels like we're at an even deeper moment than that because it's not just in the streets, it's in the boardrooms, it's in the corporations, it's on mm-hmm. in Canada, it's everything. People are talking about this at a, in a, at a deep level. And I think people are actually willing to engage in action. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not just hyperbole, it's not just a discussion point or a book club meeting. People are looking at their policies and, and that to me gives me hope. Mm-hmm. And it's cause for optimism because, again, if we keep it at the individual level of analysis, this continues. But if we start actually changing policies at the government level, at organizational levels, in school systems, I think we will see, I'm optimistic about some of the change. Having said that, there will be backlash. I mean, I think mm-hmm. anyone should look at history in terms of social movements and justice movements. The pendulum swings back and forth. Mm-hmm. And so we're at a moment where it's swinging this way, but it is, we've already seen evidence that there are forces that are fighting that progress. I mean, the White House executive memo banning certain conversations about diversity yeah. and anti-racism training. I, you know, some people saying that any school system that teaches the 1619 project by Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times is going to have their funding taken. Mm-hmm. There's always forces out there, but I'm so optimistic that the people around the globe are are, are standing up and speaking up. Yeah, yeah, and I, I hope you're right, Tina, and I hope uh, and I hope that that trend continues. And thank you for making this conversation safe today. I I saw an excerpt from uh, from James Clear James Clear's newsletter this week that I thought was fitting for today's conversation. And James said, "There's a concept in Zen Buddhism known as Shoshin, uh, which means beginner's mind." Uh, Shoshin Mm -hmm. refers to the idea of letting go of your preconceptions and having an attitude of openness when studying a subject. There is a danger that comes with expertise. We tend to block Mm -hmm. information that that Mm -hmm. disagrees with what we learned previously and yield to information that confirms our current approach. We think we're learning, but in reality, we are steamrolling through information and conversations, waiting until we hear something that matches our current philosophy or previous experience. Mm -hmm. cherry-picking information to justify our current behaviors and beliefs. Most people don't want new information. They want validating information. And Mm -hmm. when I read that this week, it made me sort of worry on some level that the world is is broken. Uh, With the advent of social media, it's easier than ever to insulate ourselves with people that only agree, agree with one another. So whether your voice is loud or soft, they both have the ability to impact change, but only if we're willing to listen to voices we disagree with. Mm -hmm. to examine our own beliefs and why we believe them and engage in conversations that dig and bridge. And most people don't want new information. We cannot be like most people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Tina Opie, it's been an honor to spend the day with you today, this session with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Uh, We were just getting started um, and I hope that we can do this again someday. It's been uh, such a privilege to, to get to know you better over the last few months. Thank you so much, Jeff. Same here. And to your team, thank you for being so 
kind and hospitable and flexible with me and my crazy schedule. And it's been a real honor to speak with you and with your audience. Thank you so much, Tina. And for those of you that want to stay connected with Tina, please find her on Twitter and on LinkedIn. She has uh, some terrific content. If you're trying to learn more about this subject matter and engage in conversations in a more thoughtful, meaningful way, Tina is a terrific resource. Uh, her website, OP Consulting Group, is also a great resource. And if you have questions for us that we couldn't get to today or comments about the show, please uh, email us at info at unleash. Uh, dot com and we'll get those to you and then of course the recording of today's episode will be available on the blog uh, later this afternoon and you can send that out to all your colleagues that uh, didn't get a chance to watch it live and we have a shop local uh, gift card available so if you fill out the, the questionnaire at the end and give us your valuable feedback you will automatically be entered into a draw to win a $50 gift certificate to a local vendor of your choosing. And we'll draw for that tomorrow morning. So please uh, submit your feedback on the episode. We read every single comment. And uh, some other news that we want to share is Beck's Exchange on October 29th with Sarah Noel Wilson. We're doing a half-day cyber event all around managing change. So how do you equip leaders to manage their teams effectively through turbulent times, through change, through the dynamics that not only impact the teams, but that impact the output and performance of their contributions and in relationships with customers. Uh, it's a very low cost offer to get your executive team signed up for only $149 to join us for that half day with, uh, with the amazing Sarah Noel Wilson. And then uh, looking forward to other uh, episodes. So next week we're joined by Harvard professor Sheila Heen, and we're talking about feedback. Every single day we're surrounded by feedback, whether it's at home or in the workplace. Sheila Heen is one of the world's foremost experts on how to give and receive feedback. She's a best-selling author, and we have a couple of spots left for the 30-minute overtime that follows her episode as well, where uh, the eight people that sign up for that will get a copy of her book as well. So hope you can join us next week for Sheila's episode. Uh, be kind to each other. Let's listen to each other. And let's really, really focus as we go forward here on self-examination and thoughtful conversations with people that uh, have good intentions and divergent opinions. Tina, thank you for this. We'll uh, see everybody next week. Thank you.